Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. And today we try and get at the question of if the Second Amendment only protects muskets, why do they keep going after my bayonet locks? <laughs> so like this actually like I really like this observation. Danny texted me and like I sent him the little like mind blown gif, which is the fact that we are talking about assault weapons bans today. Um, and one of the things of the federal assault weapons ban was that you could have one, but not other features. And one of those features was a bayonet lug, which was, is super weird. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But Danny made the very astute observation that like, if you believe the argument that the Second Amendment only applies to firearms that were available and accessible during that time, then theoretically bayonet lugs were like, yeah, they're super popular. They're integral to musket. I think by, I mean, there's a few definitions of musket depending on the time period we're talking about, but Generally speaking, they're also pretty integral to the definition of what a musket is a thing to be. So, yeah, I feel like I feel like bayonet lugs by even a very narrow view of the Second Amendment are expressly protected. Danny will die on that hill. I will. He will die on that hill with a bayonet charge. (laughs) (laughs) I will only have a bayonet, but I'll die on that. Um, So we've talked about in past podcasts, we've been talking about different types of gun laws and we've covered, you know, nepotism. We've covered racism. We've covered classism. Um, And in the last one, you know, I think we talked about how basically after the Civil Rights Act, uh, the South, you know, decided like, "Mm, maybe we should stop saying racism because we're not allowed to anymore or like specific you know, ethnic groups or races. Um, And now let's introduce a ban on specific type of firearms, like the army Navy laws in the South, which then shift over from being overtly racist to also majorly classist. And this is the beginning. uh, The late 19th century is really the beginning of this concept of banning firearms, not people. And then that evolves into firearms features in the 20th century. So before we get into the actual assault weapons ban, Danny, why don't you talk a little bit about the National Firearms Act? Because while there's a lot of like weird state laws that are getting passed for banning types of firearms in the South, sorry, no, no judgment to the South, but like you guys were like pretty, pretty rough on it. But the National Firearms Act is a really big federal recognition um, of this type of new regulation. Right. And we've talked a little bit about the NFA before, so I won't, I'll try to keep it brief, but you know, it's the rule that it's the set of rules that like governs our machine guns, title two guns, short barreled rifles, short barreled shotguns um, originally was going to cover handguns Um There's this narrative that it was like this last minute, like train ride lobbying effort that saved it. But there's also some evidence, I think, out there to suggest that it was actually a bit longer process and there was some back and forth. Um, But there was definitely some lobbying. But they were, you know, today we think of new firearms legislation as assault weapons bans. Back then, there wasn't a lot to go on or not as much to go on. So they were really looking at banning or restricting classes of guns. And the effort seemed to be on things that were concealable. Um, Now the effort is focused on things that, you know, are, you know, rates of fire and that kind of thing. Well, concealability still plays a little bit. Yeah, and there's still concealability. But, um, you know, I think that's why there was such an emphasis on like the short barreled rifles, the uh, silencers, now suppressors, um, 
originally handguns, but then if you take handguns off, there's an argument to be made that SBRs and SBSs don't make as much sense. And that's why we, you know, that piece of legislation is why in the U.S. we end up with sort of these broadly um, open firearms laws. And we look at a country like the U.K. that's generally considered restricted, but I was just reading a post by somebody this morning and they were posting their, it's a Ruger American rifle in like 300 blackout and it's got a 12 inch barrel and a suppressor and the guy posted it from the UK and somebody's like, Oh, what did that take here? It would take like nine months and yada, yada, yada. He's like, I don't know. I went down to the gunsmith and he chopped the barrel while I waited. (laughs) It was like, you know, it's this super short bolt action rifle with a suppressor that would normally be two tax stamps, two waiting periods here in the U S but over there, you know, they, they missed that period of legislation focused on concealability. Um, and of course, machine guns, you know, those weren't part of the concealability issue. So that's a, another ballgame. But nowadays, the legislation has moved into, um, you know, the, the general sort of national level discourse is about like federal level assault weapons bans. And that's something that we've really got into in more recent years and a changeover from that earlier period. Yeah. So basically, we're going to jump 50 years. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. one of the well, I guess it's a little early um, for all of the dialogue on mass shootings because a lot of these assault weapons bans center around mass shootings and, you know, whether or not the bans of these types of firearms, you know, prohibit, um, impact, you know, the number of mass shootings, the effectiveness of mass shootings. Now, it's important to note that mass shootings are not new. um, And this idea of mass deaths are not new. I mean, we've talked about Wounded Knee, but we've also, um, in the museum, we talk about the Bath School Massacre, which was more of a bombing, right, Danny, I think? Yeah, I think there were a couple of shooting deaths in that one, but it was the most of the, I think it's still one of the worst school attacks in U.S. history, but most of the deaths there were the result of a bomb. Yeah. Um, But one of the earlier things that you see um, actually comes out of California, which probably doesn't surprise a lot of our our listeners. But um, basically, there were a couple of different um, cases that uh, and shootings that occurred in California. um, And then the law that got introduced and then ultimately passed in 1989, I think, was the Roberti Roos um, case, which was the, you know, an attempt at, you know, to the type of assault weapons ban. But what is interesting about Roberti Roos is that we're still seeing that concept of let's ban whole named firearms. So like the army Navy laws in the South, like, um, and Roberti Roos was kind of complicated in that sense because like they, they literally tried to list like all of the different firearms, like to the manufacturer and model. And there were obviously, you know, constantly new companies, new models being made, things that worked around Roberti Roos. Um, so then they moved to, okay, we can't keep naming things. So let's, um, let's, focus on features of what make these firearms and their arguments more lethal and therefore dangerous, unusually dangerous, which is um, um, so not common use and unusually dangerous is often what's cited as the kind of quote unquote loophole of the Heller decision. So that's where a lot of um, you see this pop up in a lot of different legislation, although that decision was relatively recent, but that's. And that goes back, that goes back to an old Supreme Court case too. Uh, around the same time as the NFA case, I think, off the top of my head, um, the Miller case, oh, Miller yeah. versus United States, I think. And that was, there was another um, common use, military use distinction made there 
that has had some has a long shadow but isn't often cited and this is a thought that i had while you're talking there and this might be a stretch but in trying here i'll try and find common ground with the other side trying to list every type of named gun as we now know from the renovation and writing labels is a path to madness. Well, I mean, look at the California handgun roster. <laughs> like, right. It's crazy. Like, um, like I, I disagree with why they were doing it. Like personally, I disagree with why they were doing it, but I also realize, like I share some empathy for like going down that path and like trying to find every iteration of something is insanity. Well, and it, and it really goes to show that like a lot of these things are based in perception and not, and and theoretical research and not necessarily like talking to people that actually um understand the technology yeah. um but when that was something i was thinking of as you said sorry to cut you off but oh you're fine like you know if we look at the nfa you know the the gun laws are and this is true for lots of legislation so it's not just firearms but it's interesting to me how these are based on the perceptions of their times you know so the nfa is focused on um you know, prohibition era stuff, the machine guns used in high profile settings like BARs and Tommy guns, um, the concealable guns associated with the gang violence of that era. Even if those high profile crimes weren't necessarily the main driver of firearms violence, you know, typically that's still homicide um, or suicide. Uh, But despite that, it is high profile and very public. And so that's where the NFA is like focused. Whereas today, you know, school shootings make up a very small fraction of actual firearms violence, um, but they're so high profile that they drive the public debate. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me how these things are both products of their times, I guess, is the. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I mean, you're right. Um, and the other thing going on, especially when you look at these, you know, assault weapons ban, you know, court rulings, um, it's not because, you know, while obviously, you know, there are, you know, AR-15 semi-automatics that are used in mass shootings, it's not necessarily the the weapon of choice. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, in the 80s, you get like the mass boom of the commercialization of semi-automatic AR-15s, um, you know, and so it's, and it doesn't help that the gun, a lot of the gun industry is like, mm, I don't like that. You know, right, like right. the NRA is like, mm, like, no, you know, so it doesn't help that like our people at the same time, like the gun world was like, you know, I really just, you know, want my shotgun. Um, so it doesn't help because it's like this almost like agreed upon concept across the board that we don't necessarily like these black guns. Um and so it, it really is the, you know, the product of the time, regardless of necessary statistics that show, you know, whether they're used one way or the other. Um, and I think it's important to mention that not like none of these assault weapons bans, although they always have different criteria depending on the state or the federal law. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because they never actually ban everything, you know, that they're describing. I mean, they 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 ultimately ban you know, a certain type of semi-automatic, which can be actually a, you know, a rifle or a handgun or some kind of shotgun, a semi-automatic shotgun. So like semi-automatic appears 
and then centerfire appears, but in no way does it ever ban all semi-automatics or centerfires. They just start listing these features and it doesn't even ban the features. It lets you have a feature, but not all of the features. And so that's an interesting thing because it's, I think the perception outside of this world is that these things have been outright banned. Um, and even I've, I've had like gun industry people, you know, be like one, you know, the federal assault weapons ban in the 94 came in, it banned this. And I'm like, no, it didn't. You know, it, like those things still were sold. They still existed. Um, you know, and so it's interesting that like when you do something like that, you know, you're not making an outright ban. Um, and I think the current, uh, you know, proposal under the Biden administration is more of a registration process than a ban in and of itself. I could, I, it's been a while. Well, so there's a lot of right. moving parts of that, but I swear I read something about it's, you know, that there's a registration right. process like NFA rather than an outright ban. So even through that, it's not an outright ban and these things still exist. And even in California with a super strict assault weapons ban, um, you know, you can still have it as a featureless rifle. Right. And that gets in, I think one of the proposals back during the campaign was something like, um, you know, magazines would be added, like magazines over a certain limit would be added to NFA and stuff like that. So yeah, it's still, it's like a registration deal. And it gets into this question too, of like, um, this is supposed to be focused on US gun laws, but it, I've had two thoughts come to mind. And one is being, it's interesting to me, you mentioned like how many people perceive it as banned somewhere where it's not really, it's just heavily registered you know it's like it's the old trope of like people that didn't understand the nfa saying well machine guns are illegal not illegal. oh yeah so many people think machine guns well people think that all machine guns are illegal right and that's weird to me but it's it's not they're just heavily regulated so they're still able to be owned and so basically and it's super classist because once they threw in the hughes amendment in right. 1986 they created a finite market of machine guns in the united states which drove the prices of those machine guns up so now only people with like you know five figures right. you know just to throw around can have those machine guns so and you know it's it's interesting how these things all like you know have an a reaction like it's like a you know a landslide reaction right. um, when they try to regulate these things you know there's always loopholes and then there's always like unintended consequences it's also interesting because we get this a lot with like when we have international visitors um which we didn't get a lot of this past year obviously but uh you know we've had them come and leave comments in the museum like we don't have firearms where i come from and they're like like it'll be like anonymous from france or anonymous from some random country and he's like you do you might not have a lot of them but it's very few localities um or i guess it's this is going outside the U S debate, but there's very few places where it's an actual total outright ban. Um, it's mostly usually heavily registered or regulated. Um, so there's, there's that side of perception too. I think I also have a, this, you're talking about the industry's sort of hesitancy around ARs at the time when some of these feature or assault weapons bans were being introduced. Of course, we have to talk about the elephant in the room that is the fact that Bill Ruger was on our board and he was, you know, famously quoted as saying, I think he was quoted about the, I can't remember it right now, but the 10 round mag limit that had been proposed. Um, and so he's caught a lot of flack in recent years for that. Well, he, he did, but. And of course he gave us an amazing Hawking collection. So there's that. <laughs> Um, but then also too, I mean, going along those lines, like I had no idea, like I did a video for recoil, like maybe six years ago about my Ruger red label. And I was so excited about it. And everyone was like, Oh, Ruger sucks. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, 
what? Like, and I knew that he, you know, like I knew about the drama, but I didn't realize like it was so forefront because, you know, it was not, well, I guess it wasn't that long ago. Uh, well, it was the, you know, almost the age of the CFM before we redid it. Right. Um, but it was, you know, it was interesting. And then also the fact that like Ruger and this gets cited in a lot of these cases, the mini 14. Right. Yeah. And so it gets, and then you have, there's like another layer there too, that we haven't, it's probably a different episode, but I think is important to at least acknowledge for this topic is that at times it feels like looking back in the past that some manufacturers have tried to use this as use some of these laws as a competitive edge. So like when you look when import rules are coming up, because that plays into this, because a lot of these have imported, at least at the national level, they change the way guns can be imported. And so it's like American manufacturers look at that and like, you know, it's not great, but it also wouldn't necessarily hurt us if we didn't have to, you know, compete with HK or whoever, you know, like. What? That was an odd choice. Yeah, that was that was a terrible choice, but. <laughs> Maybe like Walther. Yeah. And, and especially, I mean, going back to like the GCA when it changed the, the pistol import um, rules. So like we. Or you could just be like FN being like, mm, here's our facility in South Carolina. Right. So, and a lot of foreign manufacturers have done that. You know, there's a ton of them. that Walter has a base here. Right. Um, but anyway, that's that's another topic. And so there's this whole weird overtime interplay of how like the industry has dealt with this. And I have a hypothetical that's a total sidebar. But given the Army Navy laws of like the 1860s and 70s, what would like I'm trying to think. Modern day, you know, Colt introduces a heavy barrel AR-15 and a bunch of places exempt that particular rifle from their assault weapons ban. It's considered sporting enough. So I'm trying to think of like what the sporting exemption would have been had modern industry workarounds existed in the 1870s. Would they have like made a H-bar Colt peacemaker? I mean, but to some extent, those workarounds did exist, um, maybe not for laws. I haven't looked into the laws and workarounds for the laws as much, but like, look at patents, <laughs> you yeah, know, right, like there's right. lots of workarounds. So the concept's still there. Um, so let's, you know, let's finish up with the federal assault weapons ban and then let's back it up and, and talk about some of the features that are often addressed in these and, and what their historical lineage sure. actually is. Um, but so, but so basically, um, you know, the, the, you know, assault weapons bans are happening, you know, really on a state by state level. Um, and then Columbine happens. Um, and that's 1999. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that 99? Oh, well, there's, it's after the federal assault weapons ban. <laughs> that goes the, into the popular yeah. perception because that's the shooting we all think about, but there's, yeah, there's I a, totally like in my head. I was like, okay, Columbine's after, and then I just, I just totally <laughs> blew the perception. <laughs> but there are um, there are a couple high profile shootings um, in the late '80s, early '90s, and there's a couple. You know, I think it's again. I'm going outside the country here, but I think it's worth mentioning that a couple of the prominent, you know, like the UK and Australia, they have a couple prominent shootings around the same time. And I think it raises this debate, you know, now we're in the, the international news cycle, you know, once we get to the nineties and once we get to the cable news era, it's not just what's happening locally, what's happening within your own country. This idea of this lone wolf attacker is suddenly a almost international level discourse. 
Um, well, and Danny, I think you had done research, year, you know, a couple of years ago, because there's this belief that mass shootings don't happen in other countries. And that's just not true. Right. That's that's one of the common threads you hear is like mass shootings or spree killings don't really happen other places. There's a lot of data to go against that, um, which we don't need to get into here. But yeah, for the U- for the sake of this, you know, the, the tracking the U.S. Uh, federal ban um, or federal assault weapons ban. There, there's a couple early uh, 90s, late 80s, high-profile shootings. And so there's this push to do something um, about it. And it gets into that idea of like, that is the, pop, that is the even though they're you know, still a very small sliver of actual gun violence, they get thrust into the national media and that becomes the talking, you know, that becomes the discourse. And so then um, this federal assault weapons bailout um, that becomes the center point of, of this. And I think becomes a model for most of the legislation since that might be a stretch, but I'll let you talk about the actual details of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what's interesting is, is I think to some extent, you know, these types of laws and, and, and like really throughout because like the NFA banning machine guns, it's, you know, yeah, some gangsters were using machine guns, but there were also like plenty of, you know, Thompson's going overseas, um, you know, and being used and, and being used in legal ways, you know, so like it's this, um, almost like band-aid on like the people want something, you know, the, the, the mass wants something to be done. And so, you know, there is a government reaction of we're going to do it, you know, and it's very difficult. And, and, and to be a little empathetic, um, you know, in general, like two politicians, which is like, I'm sorry, that's probably a huge no, no. Uh, but to be empathetic, I mean, you're between a rock and a hard place because you've got your constituency that ultimately wants, you know, some kind of change. Like they want it, it's human nature to want, you know, to fix something that seems, you know, completely, you know, um, you know, something that they, you know, they, they're disturbed by in society and they want, they want to fix. And so, you know, the, the politicians are like, okay, so like, what can we do to, uh, you know, to, I, I, you know, and I, and I, I would believe that a lot of people believe these things, you know, actually help. Um, and there, that's a debate, you know, that those, the, the all the stat- statisticians can go, you know, into whether it does or not. But, um, you know, it's this idea of like, people want something to happen and that this is a something. Um, and not necessarily being put forth by people who are very well versed in these features and what these features do and do not do. So uh, like, like we said, there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different features that pop up, but let's go over some of the, you know, the historical lineage. We won't go too deep into it, but um, of these things, like, are they new or are they really just a product of the past? Uh, ooh, that was good. I was, that was good. Yeah. Should, Camila's shaking her head. You should uh, uh, <laughs> trademark that phrase before somebody like starts a new, pro- a new podcast with it. Right. A product of the past. Oh my God. Like I'm going out on my own spinoff series, Ashley and products of the past. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I digress. So the first thing I mentioned was semi-automatic technology. So like they almost all center around semi-automatic technology and um, a lot of them tackle rifles, shotguns, and pistols. Um, and so semi-automatic technology, you know, is very old. <laughs> we know that, you know, it's, it's traced to the 1880s. Um, by the early 1890s, you have semi-automatic handguns. 
um, and you've got box magazines and all of these things that come with like a semi-automatic technology is all happening around the same time. And, you know, semi-automatic technology is so old that some of those handguns or semi-autos are considered antiques by the gun control acts definition of pre-1898. And so some... theoretically those things are not federally firearms. Right. And some exempt, some of these as written, I think do exempt antiques, which to me is, I guess, like if you're so broad that you have to specify that certain antiques are exempted in uh, antiques and this not just being like your grandma's wood chair, but specifically antique firearms. You know, if you if you're so broad that you have to specify that guns that are antiques that meet these criteria are exempt. To me, that's too broad. Well, and then think about um, so many of these semi-autos and it can lead into the next conversation um, or the next thing. I'll jump around a little bit. But like, are, are people rocking their past their incital in, in like California? Is that a thing? Um, but almost all. Sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, I think there was a case. I want to say it was out of the UK a couple of years ago where um, like somebody tried to get around gun laws by, he was like brokering like old, like percussion pistols to like gangs or something like that. It was some weird, bizarre thing. <laughs> We're back to like the old French yeah, street yeah, yeah. gangs with their Apache pistols. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So the other thing about that um, is that, uh, these these handguns that many of them could be considered antiques and not federally, um, you know, illegal. Uh, interestingly enough, have other features that pop up in assault weapons ban uh, bans, namely uh, detachable stocks. So several uh, assault weapons bans reference uh, two things going on with a detachable stock. They talk about different types of stocks. Uh, so while detachable stocks don't necessarily pop up in the current legislation, they usually focus on folding and telescoping stocks, which run into the conversation of concealability. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not usually discussed in the terms of like, if you have a better fitting stock that is good for, you know, different ability, you know, able shooters. Um, but so the detachable stock allows for the concealability of a handgun. And when you add a stock to it, making it a shoulder firearm, it now has a pistol grip. I almost like did the home alone face. Like, the Macaulay Hogan Home Alone phase. You know, so so now you've got, you know, several firearms that predate their designation as a firearm. So they're an antique. And not only are they semi-automatic, not only are they center fire, uh, which is another one that pops up. So we went, and center fire is 19, early 19th century as well. Uh, you know, not only are they center fire, not only are they semi-automatic, they're also short barreled rifles to some extent, you know, and they've got pistol grips. Right. And so like, Literally, you've got a series of firearms that are not legally federally firearms that are showcasing multiple features that appear in the assault weapons ban. And if you think about it, if the assault weapons bans are not, not my voice is like, because my brain is working over time. Um, if you think about it, the assault weapons bans will say something like you can have one feature, but not the others. So these have like multiple features, which are problematic um, and, and do meet some, and some of them do meet the definition that are, you know, highlight like, cause it, like all these bans have like really weird, like very precise definitions. And, and some of these older guns, perfectly fit those definitions so like man you've got a multi-feature theoretical like by today's definition legal definition assault weapon that federally is not a firearm and it's <laughs> yeah it's really like i mean the i guess a colt you know 51 navy with a 
detachable stock would be okay because it only has one feature. It doesn't have a detachable magazine. But if that Colt 51 Navy was smoothbore, it then does fall under the California's definition of revolving shotguns and its short barrel. Oh, yeah. So so then the Colt, like the 39, you know, shotgun, the post-Patterson shotgun. And I think that you could get a 1855 with a smoothbore. Mm-hmm. So, um, or so then does that mean now we're just now we're just crazy. like now we're just but does that mean that a single shot flintlock that has a detachable stock which existed and a lot of them were smooth bore because they were pre uh, the development of the clinically shaped projectile so now is a smooth bore flintlock with a detachable stock it's questionable whether the therefore you know by default pistol grip meets the definition of where the webbing of the hand goes in the finger. But now you've got a short barreled shotgun uh, with a detachable stock. So with an ability for greater concealability, possible pistol grip by today's definition is a flintlock with all of those features then considered an assaultant. Like I'm not trying to be an asshole. I like it now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, wait, these are multiple features and they're not federally firearms. So here's a good one. The Ithaca Auto Burglar is a two-shot break-open shotgun. It is considered officially in any other weapon. Um, its bore is over 50 calibers, unless it's one of the 410s, which are not common at all. Um, it's not a rifle. It's not a shotgun. It's an NFA item regulated. We have a ton of antiques that meet that that like meet that same criteria. Even like, um, you know, I'm thinking of a smooth bore pair of antique pistols. The only difference is their percussion fired versus the auto burglar is cartridge fired. They're still break open or not break open. Excuse me. Um, they're still double barreled pistols with smooth bores that are over 50 caliber. Oh yeah, let's not even get into so like, over 50 one, Because it's made after a certain date, it's not okay. One before a certain date is okay. And I think probably the percussion cap muzzle loading is why is like the distinction. But it also gets into if that antique cutoff is okay for any other weapons and SBSs and SBRs and all this other stuff. Why is the antique cutoff not good for machine guns? Because there would be some machine guns that would be antiques. But it's my understanding. No, Sorry. Um, like in the ATF designation, a machine gun's always a machine right. gun. Right. Yeah. But for all the other NFA designations, the antique cutoff is an exemption. Yeah. And, and I do know that there's some like weird wording within the ATF um, antique cutoff where like if it's a semi-auto with common like modern, you know, common ammo. So like a nine millimeter or something, I think it's not, you know, exempt under the antique, but a lot of those early ones are weird calibers, you know, so they, you know, they, they don't necessarily fall under that special loophole. Um, you know, and we don't even need to get into 50 caliber other than to say there are a lot of, legis- you know, there are a lot of uh, bills being proposed right now that regulate beyond 50 caliber without necessarily acknowledging an exemption for antiques. So like all our muskets, like <laughs> all our muskets, gonzo. Gonzo. Um, but yeah, so I think we covered like semi-auto center fire, revolving shotguns, um, uh, pistol grips, um, the idea of a, you know, adjustable stock, even though it's detachable. Um, what else are we like? What else are we? I mean, there's a ton of them, but what else are we? Yeah. So, missing? I mean, we mentioned 
the semi-auto function, um, detachable mags. Of course, I mentioned bayonet lugs earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the common. You remember the? Do you remember the like um, the like the chainsaw? <laughs> you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That went around for a while. I think one we probably haven't touched on is, um, given the NFA, you know, federally, since that's a federal item, I don't think many states um, tackle it separately. But I think barrel length would probably be one that would be common if it hadn't been tackled federal or hadn't. Uh, it is actually in a lot of the assault weapons bans. You're right. It, it is actually addressed again. So um, and barrel like, you know, that it's one. not by definition. It's usually 20 inches. Hmm. I think so. Like it, it like, exp- I think it, it makes, you know, takes MFA and like gotcha. doubles gotcha. down on it. Yeah. But that's, I mean, so that's one short barrel firearms like are really common. Um, you know, the, we have a, we have several, I shouldn't say a bunch, but we have several like muscatoons that are designed for like mounted troops and they have, you know, it's like a 12 inch barrel carbine, you know, effectively it was meant to be a mounted soldier's carbine. We, I don't know what we call it today, but you know, it's very short barrel, very sh- designed to be very handy. Um, but all of those would fall afoul of barrel length stuff if they weren't antiques. Threaded barrels. Oh, that's another that's a big one. one. And those are around, you know, um, I can't think of an antique one in the collection off the top of my head. But like, let's, well, that's because, you know, a lot of threaded barrels were for silencers, right. which, well, it didn't have to be for silencers because Maxim's first one had a coupling that didn't require a threaded barrel. But I argue that like your initial bayonet, bayonet log, which does get regulated on some assault weapons bands, is the same concept. I mean, you can like you like lock in a, a, a bayonet to it. Well, and there's all those muzzle devices um, that I don't know how they would be treated, legally speaking, if again, it wasn't for that antique thing, but like when you think of like the American target rifles from like 1830 to about 1870 or 80, all the weird like bullet starters and all sorts of stuff. I don't think they were typically threaded on. I think they'd normally fitted differently, but um, there's a ton of detachable muzzle devices on, on those guns that are really just yeah. like 30 pound target rifles. Randomly, a lot assault weapons bans often go after grenade launchers, and it's just like, oh yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point, and those definitely go back to like 18th century at least. Yeah, I think they sometimes go back earlier, but I know that the Smithsonian has 18th century examples. Um, I'm trying to, I mean, I know that we're gonna miss a bunch, but maybe because we've been talking for a while, we should switch over to and finish on this, which is a really popular media like public dialogue right now is the expression of weapons of war. We don't need weapons of war mm-hmm. on our streets. And I would just like to point out that one, uh, the founding fathers preferred better firearms that were in the civilian market to weapons of war. <laughs> so like when you say you don't want weapons of war on the street, I mean, colloquially and historically, you're saying you don't want shittier firearms on the street. You want more advanced technology right, yeah. um, on the street. That backfires, right? Right. Yeah. If you look at it from a history, I mean, people are being very presentist when they say weapons of war because they're, you know, they're trying to conjure up images of like, you know, mini guns mounted on the side of like a Huey and tanks and all sorts of stuff. But historically speaking, the military was relatively conservative and slow to adopt new technology. 
So the things you could get on the civilian market in terms of firearms were way more advanced. So, you know, going back to the days of the revolution, you could get a far more accurate gun from a civilian source than you could as your general issue, you know, service musket, um, the rifle versus musket debate. Uh, there's, you know, look at the civil war, there's a ton of breech loaders out there and the government sort of the union government sort of begrudgingly eventually adopts a few of them, but there's all sorts of, um, things out there. And some of those have to be purchased, you know, like soldiers are spending money to get civilian arms onto the battlefield. Like it's this whole reverse thing. And then to add another layer to the weapons of war, the, the issue with that expression is the fact that post-war weapons surplus is been, it's, it's super uh, historic where when you've got extra weapons lying around from the war, you know, they sell them to the civilian market for far less. And it's still going on today through the civilian marksmanship program. And so then theoretically, because I think M1 Garands mm-hmm. are on that list today. Right. Um, so our 1911s and all, well, let's start with like, let's just say the M1 Garand. Um, so then therefore with the post-war weapons surplus that's being sold, and I think it doesn't like, can't Europe import stuff to because that was the Carcano rifle wasn't it that was used right so a big batch of those just came in (laughs) was that there was a big batch just import of um, Carcanos and so yeah I mean it's that was probably not our greatest example but uh but like so if you say you don't want weapons of war and we're selling post-war weapon surplus things like an m1 garand does that therefore count it's got a you know an eight round end block clip so it's under the capacity <laughs> you know regulation it does you know so so you know where does that stop because historically speaking we you know civilians have always had better firearms and weapons of war and historically speaking up through modern day you know the government or entities sponsored by the government sell those weapons right. of war back to the civilian market for super cheap. And yeah, I, I think what we're saying is like, are, are we somewhat offering advice to the people we personally disagree with and that we're telling them that's a really terrible argument, don't use it? <laughs> I mean, I don't, so I, as like my perspective always has been, you know, education. So like, I've always said that, like, if I explain something to you and then your reaction is, oh my God, they're all bad, you know, because I now know this, you know, as long as you're making an, you know, an educated decision rather than one based solely on emotion or perception, then, you know, even though I may personally disagree with you, you know, I'm at least appreciating that you went to the trouble of doing the research and formulating an opinion based on sound understanding of technology. So I'm going to make that disclaimer. But then at the same time, I would like people to stop saying that right. because, you know, it's it's an ignorant statement. And I would rather them be precise in what they're saying rather because they're really they're marketing to the American public to create something that feels tangible for people to argue about without really knowing what that means. And if you're going to create legislation, you need to understand what that means, because precision and wording is like of utmost importance uh, when you are crafting a bill. Um, And so, yeah, actually I would love for them to stop using that because it makes no sense. And they're basically like causing a lot of people. It's like the whole, like, you know, gun people with the term assault weapon, you know, like everybody's fighting over like just irrelevant talking points 
and fancy wording, um, you know, and what they do and do not agree with. And like, and it has no substance. I had a lady, now I'm just ranting. I had a lady on an airplane, I think it was back from Cody, who asked me, you know, oh, you live in Cody, what do you do? And I said, I run the Cody Farms Museum. And she goes, oh, I don't think we need weapons of war. And then I was like, I'm not even, like, I'm not even going there because there's this really, really strong, you know, opinion and feeling behind that. And there's no real understanding behind it. So I would rather our politicians and our media and our, you know, decision makers and those who stand as a rep, you know, as a representative of the American people be more precise in what they are and are not trying to do. So they're not like, you know, basically giving the American public a soundbite that they can then fight with people over without any real concept of the history and the technology. And that gets into a whole discussion that I think now more than ever in our social media age, this debate is so driven by marketing and not um, not the merits of it necessarily. Um, yeah. And I'll go on my, this is Dan's conspiracy corner rant. Um, but I think for, this is true across, this is like my viewpoint on the world. So take it for absolutely garbage that it is. Uh, but you know, I, I think we've created a system where often total solution, like an actual like total solution is not necessarily a desirable outcome for either side politically because the crisis itself has value later on. So some extent of the problem surviving. So I think that's why we hear about all these so-called loopholes because an outright ban would make them too many enemies all at once. And, you know, then coming back to that well later was like, well, we had the total solution and either then it doesn't work and you look really dumb or then you don't have a nice boogeyman later on. So that's like Dan's conspiracy. Oh, brand. I'm going to double down on that conspiracy theory. Um, you know, a lot of these lobbying organizations um, and like organizations that fight either for or against firearms um, without a boogeyman, they don't make money. You know, and so I believe, you know, I have always said I, you know, if there is a solution out there, I don't think it's within the best interest of politicians and organizations trying to make money to make us all agree. And I think that's bullshit. So I, I think, think it's bullshit. Sorry, I'm so angry. In summation, <laughs> it is, it's frustrating because the organizations that you should trust the most, no matter what side you're on, is capitalizing on your fear. Right. And you're in the fear of unknown. Right rather than creating a fully educational experience for both people. And, you know, it's, there are some more organizations that I feel like are really actually pushing, like, you know, we're no, you know, we're no compromise, uh, you know, but it's, it's all based on, you know, your boogeyman. And, and if you don't have the bad guy, then, you know, it's far less interesting, I guess. And by being far less interesting, then people don't get engaged. And by not getting engaged, they don't give money. So in summation, bayonet lugs are explicitly or implicitly protected and we shouldn't be using dangerous 223 weapons of war. We should be going back to our trusty old hunting rifles in that very safe 30 out six. I feel like to sum it, like I got where you were going <laughs> with it, but then at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of people that will be like, Journey's a fun. <laughs> they are going to be like that. And I just, after I make the joke, I regret it now, but. <laughs> um, so, you know, hashtag fun lore. <laughs> fun lore. All right. Well, this actually, I feel like I was really interested in this conversation because as I thought about it more, like more thoughts pop into your head of just the, 
the the limitations of well the limitations historically of all of these laws you know and why people are doing it what's the motivation and what's the outcome right um and you know is the like and and it gets hard with what the outcome is because you know depending on who's funding your research uh you know what is it what is it my college professor said 70 percent of all statistics are made up what about that one <laughs> that was the point Danny that was the point <laughs> you know so it's like everybody can make statistics work in their favor but um and everybody can argue history as well um I mean you you can argue specific years and dates um but and you can argue the efficacy of those things and you can argue the motivation and the culture and all that stuff um uh, but you also can't but you, I feel like you very you can't really argue that these things did exist right yeah and I mean, it's hard to have this discussion without going down a bunch of rabbit holes, but I think it's, I don't know, it was, it was fun to think through or enjoyable, maybe fun's the wrong word. Um, so <laughs> you just said the same thing, fun and enjoyable. You could have said interesting. <laughs> so I did this the other day. I was trying to say my friend group has this expression. If you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. And probably a lot of people besides me use that. And I was referencing it. And I said, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be stupid. <laughs> I like totally <laughs> mental lapse. And I was like, so anyways. Um, On that note, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be stupid. Talk to you guys next week. See ya.